0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Idiots Podcast. That's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tazo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. I was thinking that I was reflecting on podcasting. And I was thinking that recently we've done quite a few episodes which are more of a kind of rant style. Yes. You might say that they were something of a... we're having a bit of a moan in those episodes. Uh-huh. And this time I thought we were not going to do a specific moan episode, but we're maybe going to do... a moan adjacent, would yeah, you moan, say? It's sort of maybe like a... Pseudomone episode. <laughs> also, we're drinking soft drinks which are not fermented. Oh,
0: non- we're, getting to, yeah. we're getting to yeah. this episode, Yeah, there we go,
1: non-fermenters, yeah.
0: Well, I hope you're happy. I'm very happy. Yes, uh, that's right, yes, we're doing a, a pseudomonas episode. Uh, today this has been a long time coming the bugs are back in town yeah the The bugs bugs are are back back in town town. Um, but first I think we should talk about the uh, definition of of non-fermenters because sometimes that gets confused particularly with early years trainees um, with uh, lactose Hmm. um, non-fermenting as a means of identification I certainly got them Mixed up when people started talking about non-fermenters, they didn't
1: explain they meant glucose non-fermenters. Yeah, yeah. The and term so is just was... used to be non-fermenters. it's like, well, what you're not fermenting. There's yeah. lots of things are. Lots of things you don't ferment. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so,
1: Callum, what are non-fermenters? So, uh, when people say non-fermenters, so let's well, we'll kind of zoom out a little bit on what we're talking about because we're we're still in the world of of the gram-negative organisms and. and We've sort of gone through some of those already. And this is us coming at long last back triumphantly to our bug episode style. And within the gram negatives, we've already talked a lot about the enterobacteriales, uh, which contain the Enterobacteriaceae and other sort of the classic gram negatives, I guess. Hmm. And those organisms all ferment glucose. So they take glucose and they break it down uh, and other carbohydrates and they get energy from them that way. And what the non-fermenters is defined by is the fact that unlike things like E. coli, they do not ferment glucose. And as with a lot of microbiological categorization, it has been done based on a historical way that we identified them using biochemical tests. And this was an important biochemical test that you could say, does this organism ferment glucose or does it not? And I think... It remains relevant, not because we really don't really use that test now uh, to differentiate them, but because when you put these organisms together into a category, there are things that that are very similar between them. And so it's still a useful way of thinking about it. And so like a lot of microbiology, we are, we are still categorizing and grouping organisms based on things that we don't necessarily do, but it is useful because when you put them together, they have similarities. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's a, it's a fairly heterogeneous group, but the certainly the big four all have similarities that... The fantastic um, four. Yeah, that make them difficult to treat, and so it's it's worthwhile considering them as a group. So so the big four that I think of are uh, Pseudomonas, Burkholderia, Stenotrophomonas, and Acinetobacter. Mm. And so if you've got any familiarity with those genuses, you will immediately realise that they are, you know, colonisers of damaged lung tissue, a cause of hospital-acquired infection, in particular VAPs and, and HAPs and, and things of that nature. They're not the only non-fermenters, though. Um, uh, will I just run through these quickly oh. and then we'll move on to pseudomonas?
1: Um, yeah, we've come up with a song that you can sing along to, like the alphabet song. Wait, I haven't done that. Have you? <laughs>
0: um, so the we're going to we discuss should, elsewhere a few, uh, which are... Things that the the listener may not have considered non-fermentative, but they are. So that's Legionella, Moraxella, the respiratory pathogens, and uh, Bordetella. But then there, if you go and look at the the SMI identification of pseudomonas and other um, non-fermentative organisms, you will see a big sort of hodgepodge of other uh, genuses, which occasionally get confused
1: uh, for pseudomonas. But yep. they. Well, I think it's worth saying here that what there's a lot of recategorization that happens in microbiology. And I think specifically in the last 10, 20 years, as we've had the ability to easily sequence these organisms Mm. and then use genetic, um, you know, that's information from the genetics of the bacteria to say, actually, this is related and this isn't. And so a lot of these um, uh, genuses now were once part of Pseudomonas. Um, yeah, group, it's true, yeah but like it's, it's sort of moved out and I think the overall all family is called pseudomonad ECA yeah which yeah, it's is a mouthful but um, I, I kind of just think about these as pseudomonads um, as a lot of the time yeah and, and that's how they would be initially identified anyway yeah.
0: but uh, for what it's worth uh, lawyer listener the other non fermenters we alternate let's do
1: one, uh, one each one, alright okay yeah Acidivorax. Echromobacter. Alcalogenes. Brevundamonas. Comamonas, Delftia. Elizabeth Kingia. Ochrobactrum, Ocrobactrum. Olegella. Pandoraea. Cycrobacter. Ralstonia. Rosiomonas. Shewanella. Sphingobacterium. And there they are. And we will be doing a... Um, tape where we just list bacteria, and hopefully we will release that as an aid for you to fall to sleep. Well, I'm sure this is a very um,
0: enthralling uh, podcast <laughs> content uh, for the uh, for the loyal listeners. But look, that's the that's the group that we're sort of talking about mm-hmm. in general. We are not really going to have episodes on anything other than the big four, and we'll the Legionella, Moraxella, and Bordetella will be covered elsewhere, but. Today's episode is going to focus on the main agent of this group that causes most of the infections, pseudomonas. Yeah. The president of the pseudomonads, pseudomonas itself. Yes. So the, there are a bunch of different species of pseudomonas, but really the the three that cause almost all the infections are the uh, species aeruginosa, uh, putida, and fluorescens. And uh, aeruginosa is easily causing more than ninety five percent of uh,
1: Pseudomonas. Originations. As I use it. <laughs> <laughs> is this
0: is this our big disagreement on pronunciation?
1: Yeah, I think I would say Pseudomonas original,
0: I don't think the J was in the original Latin. You're about to come at, back at me and say
1: that we're not speaking Latin. We're not I speaking see, Latin. I could so, see English. on your. Uh, I don't know, uh, on your lips. I. Have, I I know how I say things, and I know that other people say different things, and I'm fairly certain that the way I say bacteria is probably wrong, and that there's probably a right answer. <laughs> but um, it, I guess it's fun, isn't it, to disagree sometimes. Fine.
0: Well, go on then, uh, Calm, you take us through, where, where do you find Pseudomonas aeruginosa? Yeah,
1: yeah I think the, the most of the time, so, you know, Pseudomonas is a very su- successful bacteria. It it. It's very adaptable and it's also quite hard to kill. Hmm. And we find it a lot in the environment. So it can break down a lot of different chemicals to get energy. It's quite um, resilient, can form biofilms quite easily. And so if you look for pseudomonas and pseudomonads in the uh, environment, you'll find them in places that are wet. So, you know, what are those? Well, the main thing that we think about, particularly in hospitals, are the sort of plumbing systems, so yeah, yeah. drains, water supply units, hot water tanks, um, waterways, uh, built environment, um, but they're pretty, pretty widely spread, generally in the environment, and that's a real problem. And I think most of the time that I'm talking about pseudomonas at work, it's either, it's either infections in in patients who have you know, some degree of mean, compromise or like vascular, intravascular device, that sort of things, um, you know, when it's causing infection. But the other big thing that we think about it from is from an infection prevention control perspective. And whenever you see someone who has a pseudomonas, I think one of the things that has to go through your head is, you know, do I need to be worrying about the water? Because, hmm. you know... Hospital environments are not safe places and uh, despite a lot of work in terms of designing building and maintaining these buildings and sort of checking stuff like water safety, there's a lot of dangers. And I think this is one of the big ones. And the more I learn about water systems, infection control and like plumbing sinks, the more I'm like, oh, God, this is like really scary. You know, if you get Pseudomonas outbreak in your ICU from the water, like that can be really really dangerous so yeah. it's very important so when you um the
0: a little prom- bit of promotional material for the healthcare infection society now is that they've got a bunch of you know trainee um, uh, trainee infection prevention days which are really worth going to if you're mm. a uk trainee and one of them is on the built environment and infection control from that and they they when they're talking about water systems the if I'm remembering right, Calum, the idea is that if you've got a hot water system, you want it to be above 50 degrees because Legionella can't grow above 45 and you want your cold water systems to be below 20 uh, because that also impairs pseudomonas growth and colonization. But of course, that's really difficult to maintain in a purpose-built building, let alone a uh, most NHS hospitals were built in stages over decades of the time, sometimes by people who didn't really care about uh, infection control and safety. And that uh, is true today, the same as it was 50 years ago. So you then get this issue with overgrowth of, of Pseudomonas or Legionella. And that can be right next to the tap, in which case you can just replace the front end and sort of decolonize it. Or it can be deep within the system and that's much more difficult to deal with
1: you know it's a really pernicious problem water safety and it is a big headache and a big source of anxiety i think for a lot of infection control teams is how do you once you have pseudomonas in your systems because there's a definite balance between like recognizing that people need water to do good patient care and also saying that water is dangerous and trying to control that is a is a real challenge. So mm. things like filter of taps, you know, ideally, and I think I may be coming around to this more and more, is things like waterless ICUs. So you just don't have sinks and you don't have water. Yeah. You know, and maybe in, in that's waterless what Waterless
0: What do they clean with? Just
1: like alcohol gel? Yeah, you get like cleaning wipes and, yeah. and other things. So, you know, you just mm. don't have water. I think... We, we could talk about water for a long time. Let's and this start, isn't an infection start. control it's... podcast. What I was thinking there was that I was glad that James, someone who doesn't really have infection control in his job plan as a consultant coming up, got something from these infection control days. So, yeah, I, I found them incredibly helpful. Mm. So if you get the opportunity, I was, I to was going for the
0: foundation cert- certificate in, in IPC, which I think most trainees should at least try for, but I never got it in the end. I wasn't a CCT before I, yeah, I got need the to. chance. But, but I, I still found... found the going to the days uh useful particularly when they moved online during the pandemic and then it became much easier because before you had to take a trip down to london and that's um uh uh, difficult for some
1: yeah Um, I, i think we're not an infection control podcast we're not trying to be i think it's i think it's worth really focusing and and Emphasizing the importance of water and its links to pseudomonas, and the importance of that is because at the end of the day, infection prevention controls everyone's responsibility, no matter where you work in healthcare, and being vigilant. If you're like an ID doc on the ward, or you're you know a scientist or something, and saying like, okay, oh, the pseudomonas here, I need to, I need to think about you know where's that come from, because prevention's better than cure. If you're looking for infection control podcasts, uh, the two that I've listened to anyway have been Infection Prevention and Conversation, which is the HISS Infection Control podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just looking at their list of organisms here. Organisms? Uh, think there's, they do have a episode called Something in the Water, where they talk about the, the problems in the built healthcare facility and the sort of difficulties of water. So check that out. And then the other podcast that I've listened to about Infection Control is... Infection Control Matters which has a hundred and eight episodes um at the time of recording and there's loads of stuff in there including some stuff on water safety and pseudomonas. So check them out. We are going to stick with our regular uh content and <laughs> not pretend to be infection control experts or any experts because we are
0: just no, two idiots. But really, those two but... podcasts and a recommendation if you're in the UK for the foundation, mm-hmm. uh Program in infection Yeah, We'll put a link to control. that in the episode. I cool. So, what are the risk factors for acquiring pseudomonal infection, Callum?
1: Yeah, so I think that most of the people that you see with this are people that are in contact with, with healthcare. So, you know, that's anybody in hospital, but particularly intensive care admission. Mm. Uh, those who've got sort of disrupted immune... Um, barriers. So the two main things I think are abnormal lung. So this is like patients with cystic fibrosis or related diseases, bronchiectasis. And we sort of talk about pseudomon- uh, COPD. Um, I think COPD is this, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease this huge group of patients which range from people with a more bronchitis to people with sort of severe airway disease Mm. and I think somewhere along that journey potentially towards bronchiectasis as people start getting problems with pseudomonas yeah the lung becomes sufficiently abnormal for pseudomonas to colonize it
0: because pseudomonas doesn't really like being in the lung it likes being in you know uh, mucus laden biofilm damaged airway which has fewer immune cells than normal uh, but it doesn't like being in normal uh, lung tissue. But COPD
1: lung tissue isn't normal. And then another risk factors are things where you have, like, you know, you've got some sort of prosthetic material. So particularly, like, urinary catheters, intravascular catheters, mm. uh, or any sort of prosthetic you know So another thing is like your sort of neurosurgical infections. So you've got, like, a ventricular access device or a drain, a shunt. Um, yeah, so any plastic where an environmental organism,
0: because this is what it is, really, yeah. is... Able to colonize and and form biofilm. Loads of stuff. Um, Uh, Catheter associated UTI? Yeah, catheter associated UTI. Um, Someone's talked about that. I mean, recurrent UTIs is a risk factor in and of itself for for pseudomonal infection. And whether or not that's a combination of the uh, infection damaging the the urinary tract and then making it amenable to colonization and the repeated antibiotic exposure, Uh, I'm not sure. Mm. But certainly having catheter. Yeah. Helps, so like the proportion of counties caused by pseudomonas as opposed to UTIs caused by pseudomonas is, is greater yeah. um, uh, because the plastic is there.
1: Yeah, and I think you know the other thing to think about is skin. So, you know, if you've got chronic like ulcers, wounds, particularly those that are like dressed and like in sort of a, like a wet dressing, I guess, or like sacral sores. You often find Pseudomonas lurking there. And it's got this sort of, I'm going to talk about this a bit in the sort of micro mode Mm. uh, section, but you often find Pseudomonas colonizing these sort of wounds. And sometimes it becomes invasive and causes infection, although usually it doesn't. And so maybe that's a risk factor, you know, if you're Pseudomonas colonized to get Pseudomonas infection and differentiating those is quite tricky. Mm. And I guess, you know, sometimes people, you find Pseudomonas colonizing the gut. It's not usually a gut yeah, does, commensal... It, does but, it do it a
0: lot, though? Or is it no, transient colonisation? I think it's or?
1: probably, to a degree, transient. You know, it's it's not an organism mm-hmm. that you tend to find in the gut because it's so aerobically... Uh, it grows aerobically, generally. But uh, you do find that sometimes in stool samples and stuff, particularly people that have been in a hospital environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's probably a risk, a risk factor in itself.
0: Yeah. In, in terms of how it causes damage or um, causes pathology... There's a sort of list in the uh, Oxford Handbook of Infectious Disease and Microbiology. I, I don't think that these are worth memorising particularly, but um, there's a variety of exotoxins
1: and, and endotoxins. In general, for Pseudomonas, it, it makes people very unwell. And uh, when you've you've got someone with a pseudomonas bacteremia, they're generally very sick. But it doesn't have the same degree of pathogenicity. It doesn't have the same sort of virulence factors as your sort of classical staphylococcus aureus and beta-hemolytic strep. So it's not making people that unwell. But it does have a a couple of key toxins that sort of mediate its pathogenicity, which we won't go into detail. But it's got some exotoxins, exotoxins A and S, endotoxins various cytotoxins all these sort of things i i don 't think you know i i don 't either of us know those and does does it really matter from a clinical management point of view not really probably not no. it 's
0: interesting to know how the a pathogen lives, but I think the main uh, thing to know if you 're going to learn it is something about how it uh, how it lives are the resistance mechanisms, which are numerous and which we'll come on to in a little bit. Yeah, and James a pharmacologist. So, he what, didn't know
1: <laughs> so uh, what, what clinical, syndromes, what does clinical assume... syndromes does it cause? All right, fine, I'll take this one. So you take one, I'll take the next. Fine. Uh, so
0: the I suppose the main time that you'll see it are in hospital-acquired or ventilator-acquired associated uh, pneumonias, so HAPs and VAPs. Uh, and then UTI, but like you said, it can cause loads of other stuff. It just does it less commonly than those two things. So they're the two main places that you'll see it. So wet environments, um, where they can be, you know, colonised directly from from the environment, and usually sometimes there's plastic there too. Uh, but then it can cause surgical site infections in the post-op period, bacteremia, obviously they can be a, a cause of otitis externa and particularly necrotic otitis externa so uh, the pseudomonas can colonize wet skin and uh, you know i suppose a surgical wound is is wet skin a chronic non-healing ulcer that's wet skin while the um external bit of your ear is is fairly moist as well um
1: it is a cause of hot tub vesiculitis hot tub vesiculitis there you go um and then eye infections as well. So, If you're interested um, in hot tub fasciculitis, Dr. Glauconflecken, uh, the famous ophthalmology comedian, has a, an excellent video on the dangers of hot tubs. Oh, does he? Um, which is very funny. Oh. Okay. As, as is all his infection content. I mean, actually. all that stuff is gold, actually. Actually, maybe, maybe he's the premier infection podcast. He's actually quite educational.
0: Maybe he is, <laughs> actually. He's just started a podcast. I'm sure it's ludicrously more successful than ours. Um, and then, rarely, uh, they can be a cause of bone and joint infection, particularly if you've got multiple operations and, and prolonged exposure to the hospital environment. Endocarditis. I've never seen a case, yeah, but. I don't think I've seen a case. I mean, case the, all, all the endocarditis guidelines problem. have said that very rarely it can do it, so yeah, must it be true. Uh, and then
1: spondylodiscitis uh, as well. Yeah, septic arthritis in general, especially prosthetic joint. Yeah. It's a bit of a disaster. Pseudomonas is not something you want. It, the, the, its propensity to form biofilms strong. Yeah, the, and and once it's in, you know, what's your oral option?
0: It's quinolones, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and resistance, barrier to resistance is easier. About, yeah, yeah. quinolones are generally considered to have a reasonably
1: high barrier to resistance, but that does not apply to pseudomonas at all. Yeah, and I don't know if you mentioned there, so. I guess any sort of so eye infections is another thing. So if someone, you know, you've got an implant put into an eye, um, it's a really, really tricky place to treat as well. Pseudomonas can be an issue there. Mm-hmm. And I think neurosurgical infections is somewhere that we think about it and see it quite a lot as well. You've got this sort of bit of plastic going into a brain. Mm-hmm. So we always cover that in our in our um, regimens where we're covering sort of post-op That's neurosurgical infections. So what what infection. do you use, by the way, for...? Um, I think our protocol is vancomycin and keftazidine.
0: Same. Yeah. Yeah, same. So both branches of Nados, Royal and Fermi, are using Keftas for yeah. the... Uh, uh, Micro-mode engaged? Micro-mode micro mode engaged. engaged. All right. Go on then, Callum. Take us through it. What is... Tell me of the bug.
1: Well, Pseudomonas, it's a bacteria. <laughs> it's a cram-negative broad. Uh, it's classically... They, I, read in a, I was reading it somewhere and it said it's strictly aerobic which is okay so it only only respires aerobically it may respire anaerobically <laughs> in the presence of nitrate like is that strictly aerobic maybe there's a set definition for that the thing is with
0: Pseudomonas I mean we've um, you know we said it's in the environment it's it's everywhere like they've they've no. detected it in raindrops at, at high atmosphere no they've not raindrops it, it they can, were the, the one place we this were the place um they're uh they they're they're an issue sometimes uh with storage of jet fuel because they can consume it uh so they can adapt to lots and lots of different environments mm. but if they had their druthers they would like to be someplace that's wet and some place where there's loads of oxygen so druthers for bringing in more scots words. great <laughs> no i don't think druthers is that is it no. not scottish no, no no okay uh so yeah it's it's usually almost always aerobic yep. what else um
1: so it's non-sporing which is good don't like sporing things. Mm. Uh, it's motile, so it usually has a polar flagella, at least one. Mm. So generally most pseudomonas are motile, some of the other certain sort of non-fermenters aren't. Mm. It doesn't tend to have a capsule, and it's generally straight or slightly curved rod. What kind of agar do they grow on? It grows pretty easily on blood, um, chocolate, um, agar, so it's not it's not hard to grow. And it grows pretty well in the laboratory. And in terms of the colonial appearance, it's got this very... Cl- I think Pseudomonas is one of the organisms that when you're first starting out looking at plates, you, you quite quickly pick up what a Pseudomonas looks like. Mm. Now, caveat that with like all you know organisms, and particularly Pseudomonas, can have lots of different appearances on agar plates. So it doesn't always look like your typical Pseudomonas. But when we say our typical Pseudomonas... Generally speaking, they are regular colonies. They're quite, like, wet-looking. They've got this pigmented look. Um, so the Pseudomonas aeruginosa generally has a sort of blue-green pigment. So they've got two chemicals that they make. I think pyoviridin and pyocyanin or something, which yeah. are like, they get the blue and the green colour together. And they almost look metallic. Yeah. And they're meant to have this sort of fruity smell, uh, which is almost like grapes. Yeah, I, c- I can't say... Because, I mean... Uh, Don't you, smell you the place. smell on
0: patients' wounds sometimes. Yeah, it's a
1: pseudomonas smell, but you can't really help but but, but pick up.
0: Yeah, but I've never smelt
1: that and thought, "Ooh,
0: there are some grapes in the next no." You just
1: like it's just a very distinctive smell. Yeah. It's almost metallic. Smell, well, uh,
0: apparently saying. the the chemical that they're secreting that's causing it is something called aminoacetophenone, and that is also present in grapes. Uh, so some people also describe it as cut grass. Which again, I've never smelled as soon Monus infected leg and said, "Ooh, a freshly cut lawn is next door." Fresh either. cut grass.
1: Oh man, that's a, a overlap to a much mer- nerdier or
0: podcast that I listen to. So, so anyway, um, <laughs> the that's the regular colonial appearance and smell, I suppose. What about in respiratory samples? Is there a difference there?
1: Yeah, I guess Pseudomonas is very adaptable and so it can have different, it might not have that typical sort of pigmented appearance. I think the classic thing in my head is, you know, you've got this blue-green colony, it's sort of that smell, and and the oxidase is like quickly positive. When you're looking at it in respiratory samples, it can be a bit different, so it can be more mucoid, which is a sort of like wet and sort of gloopy appearance, I guess. It looks like snot. And uh, the oxidase test might be slow positive. Which isn't yeah. classical. Some of them can some pseudomonas can sort of fluoresce as well. Yeah. Um, but I don't yeah. think we tend to use that in the laboratory to, to identify them. Not anymore,
0: I don't no. think. Um so the the SMI for pseudomonas has a really good flow chart for uh, for how to identify them. Um and but just to sort of jump to the end, a, a pseudomonad would be the term used for any non-fermentative GNB that is oxidase uh, positive. So mm. that at that point, there will be a presumptive diagnosis of pseudomonas. And then if you confirm that, uh, you might confirm it in, you know, say a Malditov or there are some PCR applications which are, are used commercially, particularly in CF patient sputum, because you can identify pseudomonas earlier than uh, traditional culture methods. Usually Maldi is the main way of uh, identifying it. And uh, and they are... Um, Pretty good at identifying most of the non fermenters. There are a couple of exceptions, so there's not a lot of reference data for two uh, genuses, Ralstonia and Sphingobacterium, so sometimes they can be a non ident or a misident. But for the purposes of the part two uh, mostly, uh, it may be of interest to know which of the non fermenters are oxidase positive and which are not. So uh, Pseudomonas is oxidase positive, obviously, and most of the Pseudomonas. Species are, with the exceptions of Pseudomonas luteola and Oriza habitans, which are ox neg. The Burkholderia group, Burkholderia capaciae complex, is, is oxidase variable. Mallei and, and Gladioli, which is a um, small print species, are oxidase negative. But Burkholderia pseudomallei is oxidase positive. Which That's causes co- Yeah, and we'll be talking about that in a future episode. Stenotrophimolumus maltophila uh, is ox neg. And then Acinetobacter, Pandorea, and Rosiumonas at And every other non fermenter in that big list that we gave at the start are oxidase positive. And so the SMI flowchart has uh, advice on how to plate out and, and culture uh, the Pseudomonas, mm-hmm. and then asks you to have a look at the colonial morphology, do a gram stain, and then do an oxidase test. And if it's ox pause, it's got a list of the potential. Uh, species it could be, top of which is, is Pseudomonas. And then if it's oxneg it's got a much smaller list of, you know, the, the Pseudomonas and Oriza some Sumburkholderia, Steno, Acenetobacter, Rosumonus pandarea, and then says to further ident. And in commercial labs, or sorry, in hospital labs, the main way that you identify is with Malditov. Or if
1: you're on, say, the urines bench, it will be a presumptive ident based on colonial morphology and colour. Another thing that the SMI points out while we're still in micro mode is that uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa grows at quite a wide range of temperatures, so all the way from 5 degrees Celsius up to 42 degrees Celsius. I'm not translating it to Fahrenheit, switch to Celsius, America. Yeah, sorry, American listeners, you're going to have to do some sums. Yeah, um, and that's unusual. So most of the other um, Pseudomonas won't grow at 42 degrees, so that's worth thinking about. And I think it's also maybe explains what we're talking about earlier on about the water systems so so yeah i think that you know it's quite adaptable and that range of temperature is really problematic one thing that we we saw historically but maybe so less so now is that um hot water tanks was quite a common way so you'd have like a a tank in your attic or some part of your house which stored or your water and you kept it warm Mm -hmm. and ready to use and pseudomonas love that loves a tank and so does uh, legionella so Mm -hmm. you know Really great ways to grow bugs if you have a big tank of hot water. Yeah. So, I mean, luckily there is heat on demand. A thing of the past in
0: most UK homes. Yeah. Um, Right. Um, Time to kill these bugs, Callum.
1: Thank you for listening to the Idiots Podcast, the UK's premier infectious disease podcast. We are supported by the British Infection Association, but they do not have creative control over the episode content, so please don't blame them if we get something wrong. Just like the Oxidase test splits pseudomorads into two groups, we decided to split this into two episodes. Comments, suggestions, to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Got a five star review in your pocket? We'd love to hear it. Put it in the podcast player of your choice. Tweet us, or rather Jame, at idiots underscore pod. You want to buy us a coffee? You can now do so. See the link in the episode description. So until next time, I'm Jame, that's calm Goodbye.
0: Now that the episode's done, we hope you learned and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.